First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. It's found on page uh, 1212. If you don't have your own Bible with you, you can grab a hardbound pew Bible. looks like this. Number 1212 is the page. We'll be working straight out of the text here this morning. So the outline of the sermon is going to come right from here. So you'll be able to read and follow along with what we're doing. Um, like I said, we're taking a break from Luke just this one week. We'll be back in Luke next week, uh, finishing up chapter 13. Um, but we're taking a break uh, and, and launching into just this one-off here into 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. I'll say a prayer and we'll, we'll read the text together. Father, we desire that as we gather in this place this morning, we long to hear from you. And, and though we have and, and are, are jumping out of where we've been going and, and into this one text in the middle of 1 John, Father, we do so knowing that your word is divinely inspired and that every word of it is, is God-breathed. It is breathed out by you. And so we have full confidence that no matter where we go, when we look into this book, we are hearing your authoritative word to us. And so, God, no matter what circumstances have put us in this text, we come with expectation, knowing that you are a God who has spoken. You are the God who is there and is not silent. And you have spoken to us in your word. And so in this place right now, in these next few minutes, God, Holy Spirit, illumine to us the truth that you have inspired men to write down for us that we would hear from you, be drawn near to you, and find our joy in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. I heard a recent sermon uh, from a, a person who was speaking at a church and the text was out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it didn't really matter, that's where it was out of. Uh, it was a type of preaching that basically reads a scripture and then goes on and says whatever they want to say. But they, they are preaching out of 1 Corinthians 3, and, and then when they got done, kind of the, the climax or the apex of the sermon was for the church, that as they are to be leaving was this, was this application. It was just, where was just, this is a direct quote, just love everyone all the time. That was the simple application, was just love everyone all the time. Now, we sit around and we talk, we, we talk about law and gospel in church here quite a bit. And we know when we hear that, that is not a just. Just go and love everyone 
all the time. That is not some slow bar to step over. That is a very high, in fact, I would say an impossible bar for us to honestly jump over. That when, that when you set a bar out of just love everyone all the time, we are actually crushing ourselves because of the reality you have no power within yourself to march out of these doors and have any sort of life that looks like just love everyone all the time. But what was further disappointing with the sermon is that there was no fuel or motivation or power to actually even begin to walk down that road of love for others. There was no fuel. There was, it was just command. It was just law. It was just demand. Do this. Why? Because you should. Just do it. There was no, no compelling, no fuel for why you should do that. Now, it's widely known that Christianity is, is a faith of love. That if, if you are a Christian, you are to be loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or if you're non-religious or you're irreligious or you're an atheist or an agnostic or whatever you might be. Everyone knows that a Christian is to be loving, right? We have the song that would sing, you know, they'll know we are Christians by our Nice try, favor. Well, no, we are Christians by our love. That's how, and in fact, if uh, sometimes, and a large percentage of the time, the reason why Christians make the news is because they've done something unloving. And they claim to be a, a professing Christian, does some hateful thing, and then the media is quick to jump on that. Why? Because everyone knows that if you're to be a professing Christian, you're to be loving. That's just kind of, it's the obvious thing. We are supposed to be loving. And the reality is, we are. This is what John does say here, right here in our verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. It is a command for a Christian to love the other. But, and to not only love those that you want to love. I mean, so sure, we say, well, I, I got lots of people in my life that I love. Well, Jesus in Matthew 5 says, even tax collectors and sinners love other tax collectors and sinners. They love those who love them. That's no great applause. The Christian is not only to love those who love them, the Christian is supposed to love their enemy. How in the world are we supposed to do that? I mean, honestly, how are we to love those that we have no natural affinity to love? I mean, I, I like all my neighbors now, but, uh, and I actually have never had real bad neighbors. I lived out in the farm, didn't really have neighbors, and my grandparents, and then, and then we I moved to town, and my neighbors were fine. But you hear stories of horrible neighbors, and maybe you have some, that they constantly have their yard as a mess, and their trash blows over into your yard. Maybe they're just mean to you. They don't say hi to you when they come in, or maybe they call the cops on you because you've got, I don't know, some problem. They, they make up a problem. You have a neighbor who honestly dislikes you. How are you supposed to love them. And honestly, what is the fuel? You might, you might know that you should, but isn't there this, this thought in your head? If God is omniscient, if God knows everything, which he does, God is all knowing. He knows how horrible this person is. <laughs> Surely he doesn't expect me to love this person. He knows them better than I do. He knows they don't really deserve love, right? God knows this, doesn't he? So surely I'm off the hook of needing to love this neighbor. 
how is the Christian supposed to do this? Is the Christian just supposed to be better at making themselves love their neighbor? So we've got the law. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the law. And Christianity is that we're just better at making ourselves do what we don't want to do. Well, it might appear that way, but John in this whole book, this book is just dominated by the theme of love, love for God, and, 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 and he also and need the need for love for neighbor. But he goes back in several places to the fuel for how the Christian is to love their neighbor. He doesn't just lay out naked command, do this, just, just a stern rule. He comes in and he says how this works in the life of a Christian. And, and that's one of our, one of those places is our text for this morning where God, where John comes in and he says, you are to love the other, but he doesn't just leave it at command. He says a because or a for. We are to love one another for love is from God. So the main idea that we're getting, that we're going to emphasize on this text this morning, the main idea that we want to focus on is that love for others, Christian love for others, flows, flows out of the Christian, but Christian love for others flows from seeing the love of God for them in the giving of his son for their sins. Love for others flows. It isn't this, I'm, I've got to just make myself whatever, do this loving of my coworker. You got a coworker who constantly uh, is against you, tries to get you in trouble with the boss, wants you to get you fired, and they're acting, um, you know, angrily and unfavorably towards you. How are you supposed to love them? Just make yourself? Well, it might look that way, but the fuel for Christian love, Christian love for others, flows. From seeing the love of God for us in the giving of his son for our sins. We see this in several ways in the text. Verse 8 goes on. We'll start verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. There's the flowing to us, then out from us. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Just a side note there. Anyone who loves, how do we think of love in our culture today? Love is primarily a feeling, right? Um, I, I, and we have statements like, uh, I've fallen in love with someone. Or we love at first sight. And it's this idea of you just meet them and just, just some, um, like how the movies portray, just some amazing, rapturous uh, feeling and emotion, euphoria comes over you and you just know I'm in love. And then what happens a few years later, you just you fall out of love. And, and, and that love is all about some sort of mystical reality. John has love grounded in knowledge. That it, yes, it is a, the person who's been born of God loves is because they've been born of God. There is this supernatural. They have been adopted into God's family. They have been born of God, but they also know God. That if you don't love it's because you don't know. Isn't that interesting? That is countercultural to our modern thought. If you don't love, one of the main reasons is you don't know. That, that love for others comes from a knowing of God. 
a knowing of who he is and what he has done. So anyone who does not love does not know. So what we need to work at in one level of loving others in a way that is honoring to God is in our knowing of God. It almost seems backwards, doesn't it? Like we're waiting around for, I just, I'm going to sit here at home and when I feel like I should love my neighbor, then, I, then I'm waiting for some sort of a feeling, some sort of a push. Instead of what John is writing is that if, if you're not loving, it's because you don't know. You're not knowing. And so you need to work on your understanding of God. And this is what he then goes into. In this, our first point, the, the Christian, Christian um, love for others flows from seeing the love of God for them in the giving of the Son for his sins. So what does the Christian need to know? And the first thing the Christian needs to know is the Christian ought to love because they have been loved by God. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Christian ought to love because they have been loved by God. You, have you heard the saying, you become like what you behold? What you, you become like what you behold. And the idea is just, you know, if you're focused in on, um, oh, like, like say you love death metal. And so all you listen to is just hard rock death metal. You, you start dressing in all black, you know, you just kind of carry a persona. I mean, there's, I suppose, some that break the mold. But you just, and if you listen to classical music and you like, uh, you know, you like paintings and whatever, you just kind of, you begin to take on the personalities. You become like what you behold. Um, my in-laws, when we get together sometimes for special events, we play board games or yard games or whatever. And I'm, I'm the guy that when we get the board game out, I'm the first one that picks up the uh, instruction manual and reads all the rules. I know how, how play starts. I know how teams are organized. I know how scoring happens. I know how you go along. I know how to finish the game. I, I study the rules. And then when we play, I'm usually the outspoken one. You know, th- th- listen, you're not doing it right. <laughs> That's not the way we do this. The rules say this. We're going to play this way. I always just thought that was the way I was wired, that that's just, I don't know, I'm just a rule guy or whatever. I just like the rule book or something. I always thought it was just part of who I was. Her family, my wife's family, they all just like to have a good time. They don't care about the rules, cheat and whatever, and just have fun. And I'm about rules. Um, and I just thought it was me. Well, my, my thought of that changed one day. We, um, I hadn't played games with my family for a while, just seasons of life, and we hadn't really got together and spent time playing board games. But one Christmas, we went up to my sister's house, and um, she had gotten uh, received some yard games for a Christmas gift. You know that uh, game Ladder Golf, they call it? And it's got those the three horizontal uh, parallel bars, and you got the golf balls with a rope around it, and you, you chuck it at the bars, and it scores a certain way. Well, she'd got this game, and, and lunch or supper wasn't quite ready yet. So my dad, my brother, my brother-in-law, we decided, let's go to the basement, and let's just play a game of ladder golf. And we were down there having fun, tossing a, the, the scoring things back and forth. And pretty soon, someone throws it, and they think it's scored a certain way. And I pipe up and say, that's not the rules. That's not the way we're going to score this. It's supposed to be scored such and such a way. And I was expecting, you know, I've read the rules. I know it. 
And to my surprise, my father pipes up. And he says, well, I have my own interpretation of those rules. And it goes like this. And, and uh, we had a nice, lively discussion. It wasn't a fight. We had a night. We enjoyed it. That's what we like to do is to discuss rules. And I won't say who won the argument. I'll just be nice. I'll, I won't say who won. May or may not been me. But as we go up the stairs, I realize my love for the rules flowed from living in my father's house. That, that as I was around him, as I was around the way that he competitively pursued games, that flowed without my conscious decision even. Intrinsically, my father's attitude flowed to me and then flowed out of me. And in the same way, the Christian who is living in God's house, the Christian who is under the roof of their, their heavenly father, is to, in one very real way, become what they behold. As I beheld my father and how he interacted with games and all these certain sorts of things, I, it took on those characteristics. As the Christian beholds the kind, the love of God for them, as a Christian beholds them, they then walk out with this same type of love that they've been beholding. The Christian ought to love because they have been loved. That you become like what you behold. So the Christian, let us love one another for love is from God. In this, the love of God was manifest among us. We love first and foremost because God has loved, which then makes us ask the next question. How has God loved us? All right? Okay. So I'm going to become like what I am beholding. God has loved me. Specifically, how? A couple of ways in this text. If we read on, this love was made manifest by the giving of the Son to be a propitiation for our sins. What is the word propitiation? Some translations call it an atoning sacrifice. But I like the word propitiation because it has a specific connotation. It is a wrath-appeasing sacrifice. That God gives His Son to be a wrath-appeasing sacrifice. Jesus Christ comes. God sends Him. He comes by His own will. We read the Carmen Christi out of, out of Philippians chapter 2 where Christ uh, does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbles himself, taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11. That, that passage there, Christ comes, and he is a propitiation for our sins. Why? The reason why this is, why do we need propitiation? That, that, that word's so important because it highlights this reality. There is a wrath that was on its way towards sinners. That we all, born dead in trespasses and sins, ever since the time of Adam and Eve, born, we call that the fall. And I always chuckle when we talk about Adam and Eve and the fall. Because it makes, makes it sound like they stepped on a banana peel. Like, oh, they, Adam and Eve are walking along, and whoops, they, they fell. It wasn't a fall like that. Adam and Eve were in rebellion. They, they had a command from God, don't eat this. And they said, you know what? God, we know what you're asking. We want to do our own thing. Rebellion. And ever since that day, mankind has been not falling on banana peels, but has been rebelling. Has been every time that you know what God wants for you to do and you choose to do something else. That's not a whoopsie. That is rebellion. That is saying in a very real way, 
God, I, I know that you're on the throne. You're the king. You are holy and good and righteous. And you know what is best and know what should be done. But you know what? Honestly, I'd like you off the throne and I'd like to sit there instead. That's what you're saying when you sin. You are saying, God, I don't think you belong on the throne. I want to be there. And because of that, Colossians tells us that because of all of these transgressions, the wrath of God is coming. Sinners sit under the just judgment of a holy and righteous God. We are at war, at enmity with him. We are his enemies. And so what does God do in response to us in rebellion against him? He sends his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ puts on flesh, lives the righteous life we should have lived, dies the death that we deserve as sinners. Why? He doesn't die for his own sins. He dies for ours so that everyone confessing their sins, repenting, confessing themselves as rebels and looking to Christ, trusting in Him and His propitiating work can be saved, reconciled to this God. And why would we be able to do this? Because God loved and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. But not only that, verse 10 is just mind-blowing. In this is love, text says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why did God do this? We think of love as it's this reciprocating thing, right? And it is between husbands and wives. You know, you, um, Hugh and Kay just Wednesday celebrated their 64th anniversary, right? It was, I asked them last week. It was, I, I was asking them how long they've been married or whatever. And, and Kay said that sometimes Hugh would like to answer, or at least has answered in the past, that he feels like he was born married, which I thought was kind of funny. And it wasn't a slam. It was just like, I've been married so long, I can't conceive of life when I wasn't married. So I, I was asking when they started kind of, they've been married 64 years, but how long have they been kind of seeing each other? And when he was a senior, she was a freshman. And they had study hall together, and he sat behind her and started talking to her. And the teacher called Kay up front and said, um, kind of warned her that if Hugh's bothering you, you need to let me know, and I can get him to leave you alone. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. But what happened there? Hugh saw something lovely in Kay, and then he tricked her into thinking there was something lovely about himself. <laughs> And, and, and they, they got together. I mean, I, the only reason why I know that is I did the same thing with my wife. I've been pursuing my wife since second grade in one way or another. And, and all of that is is me seeing something lovely about her and fooling her into thinking there's something lovely about me. And therefore, love you know, is, is created. How did God love? That's, that's how we know of love. This is not that God looked at us and saw something lovely. It is that God looked and he saw something unlovely. He saw enemies. He saw those who were at war with him. And what does he do? Even though we were at war, even though we had no love for him, it wasn't that we loved him. We had no love for him. What does he do? He loves us and sends his son as a propitiation for our sins. This is so clear in Romans chapter six, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. I just want to read this quickly for you. Romans 5, 6 for 8. Paul says this, For... While we were still weak, 
At the right week is not a favorable way to be. I mean, it's, it's, discussing, it's discussing this weakness, this undesirableness. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the who? The ungodly, not the desirable, not the godly, not those who God thought, well, they're not real polished up, but I, they, they got some good qualities to them. No, we were the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only has he given a son to be the propitiation for our sins, he did so out of his own initiative to love you. Not because you were lovely, but to make you lovely. It is in the beholding of these realities that the Christian is to then overwhelmed with the reality that God would love me. Though I had no love for him, though I was rebellious against him, though I deserved his wrath, he sends his son to propitiate my wrath onto the son and out of his own initiative, not because I deserved it, but because he chose to do it. It is that kind of love that is to blow the Christian away. It's astonishing that God would love me like that. And so then it brings us back to our beginning point, our final point. The Christian ought to love Because God loved them. How incredible it is. John goes on to say, Beloved, verse 11, If God so loved us, and it sounds weak there in the English, but I think he's modeling or repeating kind of what he says in 1 John 3 when he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. There's this astonishment. Blown away that God would love us. Beloved, if God so loved us in this incredible way, giving and giving and giving, not by our initiative, but by his initiative, we also ought to love one another. How do we love neighbor? So often the Christian mentality is do, 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 do. We think Christianity is about all the things you must do and Christianity certainly does have, and it is calling you to a holy life, to righteousness. There is doing that happens in the Christian life. But what we often do is we we put the cart before the horse, right? And we say the doing comes before the, the done of what God has accomplished. We take the do's and we say, well, if we do, then God will do this for us. But the way Christianity works is that the do is the cart. The doing of the Christian is the cart behind the horse, the motor, the fuel of what has been done for them by God through Christ Jesus. And the Christian sometimes puts the do out front and just thinks, I'm just going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to do the works. I'm going to, I'm going to white knuckle it. I'm going to make myself. And they go out and they fail. Because what the Christian needs to do in the moments when you are failing at loving your neighbor, you look at your neighbor and boy, you think, or just any friend, you think revenge. You ever have revenge thoughts like, you know, they were nasty to me and I'm going to be nasty back to them. How does the gospel impact that? When God looked at you, you deserved vengeance. And how does he repay it? He gives his son. He, he, he has the initiative to love you. If God so loved us, we also 
ought to love one another. You know, we could, we could talk about out there, but what about right here in this room amongst this church family, amongst this faith family? When we have um, grievances or difficulties or, or things we're upset with with each other and we have, we, we have all these issues floating around, how does the gospel impact that? How do we love one another? Well, we don't just decide, oh, I'm just going to you know, make this thing happen. I guess we could do that. That motor dries out pretty quickly. What the Christian needs to do is to gaze and look and know and remember again and again and again the kind of love with which you've been loved. Just go home with the spouse, with the family, with the kids, with the mothers and fathers. How do you love them? Whenever they are in your face day in and day out, there's all sorts of grievances going on. And you think, I'm not going to do something. There's this nice thing I could do, but I can't remember remember the last time they did something nice for me. I'll give whenever you get in a fight. I'll apologize when they apologize. You ever said that? I'm not going first. When they, when they apologize to me, then I'll apologize to them. How does the gospel impact that? Look at the kind of love you've been given by the Father. They didn't wait around for you to turn towards Him because that was never going to happen. But initiates, initiates love for other, others. Christian love for others is fueled by, flows from, seeing the love of God for them in Christ Jesus. It's why we do communion every Sunday. So as we come to the table this morning, if, if you, you, this is not just some ritualistic thing we just kind of always do. Flee from that. Get rid of that mentality. We are putting taste buds onto this reality. We are seeing the reality of the love of God for us. We do not come as those who have somehow earned the table. You do not earn communion. You come confessing, I have not loved as I should have loved. I have rebelled. I have this week sinned and, and said, God, I, I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. And so we come, we put taste buds, we put hands and fingers upon this reality. We see the love of God in the giving of his son. We see the love of the Son in the laying down of His life in His broken body and His shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. If we walk out and we want to love and obey the command to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love neighbor as ourself, we must gaze again and again and again at the glorious reality of God's love for us in the giving of His Son for our sins. Let's pray. Father, help us to see in this place this morning. We need the eyes to understand this, Father. We fail on this front time and time again. And so we come this morning as we make our way in in preparation for the communion table. We confess ourselves as sinners. We confess ourselves of needing forgiveness and confessing sin and rejoicing. That you so loved us, that you gave your son to be the propitiation for our sins. That you did not wait for us to love you, but while we were still enemies, you loved us and sought us and saved us. Father, I pray that would be the joy in every heart in this place this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.